and you're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And we have a caller on the line right now. Hello, caller. Are you there? I am here. First off, who are you? Uh, I am Dan Forer, and I am the director, writer, and producer of a new documentary called Sample This. Dan, please tell me a little bit about Sample This. What is Sample This? Can you please explain Sample This for people that maybe don't understand what Sample This is about? Because it is very confusing and very interesting. Well, it's the, the film is about a group, a studio group called the Incredible Bongo Band. And they recorded an album in 1973 uh, right here in Vancouver, Canada. And it wound up being considered, one of the tracks from the album, um, Apache, wound up being considered the national anthem of hip-hop. And we just heard a track from the album called Sharp Nine. What can you tell the people about Sharp Nine? Have hip-hoppers heard that song? I think they have, although it's one of the, the lesser-known tracks from, from the... Because uh, there were two Bongo Band albums, and it's from the first album. It was recorded in Vancouver, and uh, I just always thought it had a good break. It's Jim Gordon and King Harrison, and uh, it's, uh, it's from the first album. Now, the first thing I learned from your movie, Sample This, and we're speaking to Dan Forer, the director, the author, the producer, the guy who put his life on the line for Canadian hip-hop because, well, it was recorded in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. The national anthem of hip-hop was recorded in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. So Vancouver could be the birthplace of hip-hop. That's always what I've thought of. The first thing I learned was the guy's name is not Michael Viner. It's Michael Viner. Thank you for teaching me that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, until I started uh, getting to know um, about him, I mean, the, most people that don't know say Viner, but uh, it was Viner, in fact. So when I'm saying the national anthem of hip-hop was recorded in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, Vancouver is the birthplace of hip-hop, and I get no objections from you, Dan. Is that true? Am I right to say this? I've been saying this for years. How is the national anthem of hip-hop recorded in Vancouver. How was Vancouver the birthplace of hip-hop? Well, I mean, it was a strange set of circumstances that, that, wh- why, they, why they wound up in Vancouver, because the, the couple of the tracks from the album were actually recorded in L.A., and there was a bit of uh, monkey business with CanCon, and I think that's why they decided they, they, they got a hit out of uh, Bongo Rock, and uh, they claimed it was Canadian, and it wasn't. And then they decided to do an album, and I thought I think that they were going to cover their tracks by coming to Vancouver to do the to do the album, and uh, and I think that's why they wound up here. Technically, it is the birthplace of hip hop because, of course, Cool Herc found the probably deleted Bongo Band album in a record store in the Bronx, and uh, he used it in his infamous merry-go-round. But it was recorded right here in Vancouver. I have something I'd like to ask you about, Dan. I mentioned you put your life on the line for this movie, you know, to uphold the legend of Canadian sure. hip-hop. Vancouver, the birthplace of hip-hop here. Thank you. Thank you. I have a little clip here to play for you. Thank you, KVOS Channel 12, right? KVOS Channel 12, right? 
You bet. Now, what are we hearing right now? Uh, that would probably be a, a, a nice clip from a television show called To Serve and Protect. Yes, I'm watching it right now. To Serve and Protect, Money Mart on Camby and Hastings. <laughs> How can you tell people? This is equally fascinating, isn't it? The birthplace of hip hop is in Vancouver, British yes. Columbia, Canada, or at least the crown jewel of hip hop is recorded in Vancouver. But also, the serve and protect. How is that sort of connected to everything? And what was that? Because thank you to serve and protect. Thank you, Money Mart on Camby and Hastings. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, a show that uh, I um, started up with uh, with another guy back in 1991. And uh, it's it's still running in repeats on uh, on cable. I don't know half a dozen times a day, and uh, it had a very nice long run. I, I you know the last new episode we made, I think it was two or three years ago. But uh, yeah, twenty years of of uh, chasing uh, people around the money mart um, on to serve and protect. It's basically a Canadian version of cops, right? Yes, a kinder, gentler version of cops, we used to call it, but yes. So cop money helped fund a movie on the history of hip-hop to reinforce that hip-hop started in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, or at you, least a national anthem, hip-hop cop money. You are correct. Dan, creator of Sample This, we are also joined in studio by Leora Kornfeld. Hello, Leora, are you there? Say hello to Dan. Hello, Dan. How are you doing? Uh, very good, Leora. Good to hear your voice. Thank you. Leora, you've been a great supporter of this bongo movement. How important is the bongo movement to you? You're excited every time in an interview that I've mentioned the word, the bongo ban. Well, I did really learn about it from you. What was the first interview that it came up in? Because you got the record from a guy named Avi Shack at Beat Street here in Vancouver. And... Who was the first person that you showed it to in an interview? Avi Shock showed me the record, and on the back, we both saw it recorded in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And we absolutely couldn't believe that, Dan, that here is this record, the incredible bongo band, recorded in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Well, I mean, I remember buying the single and seeing the little maple logo on it, and this would have been in 1973, I guess, or 72, and, and you know, I would have been barely a teenager. And I, I remember looking at it and going, wow, this is a Canadian band. You know, this is cool, and, and, and you know, I, I kind of forgot about it. And then later on, I think I got the album, and I saw it recorded at Can Bass, which is Mushroom Studios. It's better known as Mushroom Studios. And so that's kind of how I got hooked into it, and I just never forgot about it. And I love the way it only takes six seconds into your movie, Dan, Sample This. And we're speaking here to Dan Ford, the director of Sample This, a movie all about the incredible bongo band. It only takes six seconds for you to mention Vancouver. Six seconds! I, 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 I guess that's the case. <laughs> I haven't looked at it, uh, but uh, if you say it's uh, six seconds, uh, I know you're very meticulous with your research, so I'll uh, take your word for it. Six seconds for you to mention Vancouver, because I also checked online, and Will Hermes, who's also in your movie, he wrote about the bongo band in 2006 for the New York Times, but he didn't mention Vancouver at all. You know, it's funny. He, he's the one that inspired me to make the film, and because he connected the dots with Bobby Kennedy and Charlie Manson and some of the crazy 
the, the, the story behind the incredible bongo band, and I'd known bits and pieces of it, but he's the one that really inspired me to go and make the film. And uh, I don't even remember, but, uh, but I do know that, that uh, he told me, you know, he wrote this 1,500-word article for the New York Times and spent about a week or 10 days writing it. And, uh, of course, I've spent over a year doing research on it, so uh, I wouldn't be too hard on him for missing the, the Vancouver connection. So you discovered it through the New York Times. When did you discover it was actually recorded in Vancouver? You said you noticed by the CanCon logo on the original single, but when did you know it was recorded in Vancouver? Was that really what made you want to do the movie? Or was it the New York Times article that made you want to do a movie? Tell me it's the Vancouver Connection that made you want to do the well, movie. Well, yeah, the Vancouver Connection, because, you know, I, I didn't live too far from Mushroom, was, was a big part of the, the, the whole equation. And, you know, and I guess I was sort of um, amused to find out that this thing that I thought was Canadian content, in fact, was not and that they had sort of pulled a bit of a fast one and, and put that maple thing on the, on the 45. And then I was kind of curious as to what really had happened with the album. And, you know, because there were two albums. And the second album is a, an interesting story as well because they were sort of tracks that Michael Wiener got from other producers, uh, half-finished stuff. And he, you know, and the, the rest of it was material that was left over from the Vancouver session that the, the tracks from the first album, most of them came from. So I'm really excited about the incredible Bongo Band. And again, if people are listening and don't understand the importance of this, please, Dan, who has sampled the incredible Bongo Band without you reciting something that'll take 3,000 years to finish? What are some of the highlights? Like people listening have heard this. They'll hear this every day, every second, won't they? Yeah, Nas, uh, Amy Winehouse. I mean, the, the latest uh, Kanye West, Jay-Z album has a nice big fat sample of Apache on it, and it's actually credited in the, you know, which is, they have to do that now back in the day. Everybody just took it. But um, I, I think if you look on that Who Sampled website, Who Sampled Who, I, I, I think there's 120 or 130 that are on there. Um, I mean, Mick Jagger's used it. It's all, all, it's all over the place. Mick Jagger, legitimizing it. It's got to be good. Check out SampleThisMovie.com for more information. And Dan, going right back to the beginning, it's Sample This Movie, but a lot of it is about Michael Wiener. Michael Wiener. Michael Wiener's incredible bongo band. What did he do? Who was he? What did he do in D.C. where he was from with, ba- where he was from with bands? Like, how was he friends with Marvin Gaye? Yeah, I mean, he was he hung around uh, uh, black clubs in D.C. and he just loved loved that music. And you know, back, this would be back in the middle '60s. Uh, one of the you know, and I was surprised to find this out. It, it came from Jerry Butler, the the soul singer. And you know, I knew that he had known Wiener in L.A. in the '70s when they worked together on this film called The Thing with Two Heads. And I asked him the question, I said, so when did you first meet Michael Wiener, expecting him to say, oh, well, you know, when we were working on this film? And he said, oh, back in Washington, D.C. in like 1965. And I'm like, are you kidding? And he said, no, he used to hang around all the black clubs, and, and he loved that music. And, and uh, so that's kind of, he, he was a definitely an aficionado of, of that music of that era, and he had a lot of black friends that were in the music business, and one of whom was Marvin Gaye, who happened to be living in D.C. at that time. 
So he was in D.C. Eventually, he makes it out to Los Angeles. How did he convince a label to take him on? Because it is said that he produced Candyman, although I saw his obit in the L.A. Times, and it was a retraction there saying that he did not produce Candyman, which was sort of interesting. How did he end up in Los Angeles? Did he produce Candyman? Did he sign the Osmonds? Well, I, th- I, I have heard conflicting stories about, uh, regarding Candyman. His sister did tell me that she was at the session where uh, Sammy Davis was talked into putting the vocal onto Candyman because it was an instrumental track that had been completed by Mike Kerb, who was the president of MGM Records at the time, and his congregation. And they had tried to talk Sammy Davis into adding a vocal to it, and apparently he wanted nothing to do with it. And his Wiener sister told me that, in fact, it was Michael that talked him into doing it. And even though he wasn't technically the producer of the session, there was another guy who was credited with being the producer that Michael, in fact, talked Sammy into doing it. And he did it in literally a take or two and kind of stomped out of the studio and just said, this is just crap, but, you know, I'll do it. And uh, that's the story I was told. So how did he convince a label to give him the power to be able to do the incredible bongo band? He had so much crazy ideas you mentioned in your film, Sample This. And we're speaking here to Dan Forward, the director of Sample This, all about the incredible bongo band. Like, what were some of his ideas and how did he get the power to execute these ideas? Like the best of Marceau Marcel. Or Marcel Curry, yeah, yeah. He, well, he, he, was a, he was a hustler. And, he, he, and, you know, Mike Kerb is quoted in the film as saying that, you know, there was never a day that went by that Michael Wiener didn't have an idea. He, he came up with this stuff, and one of the things was a novelty record, and there was a time when there were a lot of those kind of novelty records out, and he called it, you know, the best of Marcel Marceau, who was a mime, and so there was silence on the, on the record, and then there was a little bit of applause at the end, and he put it out on his own label called Goniff Records, which is um, a bit interesting, and then and he apparently sold thirty or forty thousand copies, which brought him to the attention of MGM. And MGM actually put that same record out with an MGM label, and apparently that's what got him signed to a production deal at, at MGM. And then the next thing you know, he was working on the music supervisor on the thing with two heads, and that's kind of where the bongo band came from. What were some of his other outlandish ideas? Like later on in life, he had a suicide manual for cats? Yeah, I mean, he, he, he was, once he left, and he was not in the music business for very long. He was an unlikely music producer, and he invented uh, talking books, dove books, books on tape. And he was married to an actress uh, at the time, Deborah Raffin, who, who was very popular, especially in the, in the early 70s. And they started this books on tape business that is, you know, took off. And, uh, and then he got into publishing. I mean, I know he did a, a book that uh, caused some controversy in Hollywood where he it was by uh, half a dozen hookers who named names of their famous clients in Hollywood. And I think the book was called, you know, You'll Never Sleep in This Town Again or something like that. So he was, he was always looking for, he was very good at generating publicity. Uh, somehow he got involved with O.J. Simpson, uh, and there was a book uh, to do with that. So yeah, he became a publisher later in life, and, and that's what he was doing when he uh, passed away. Did Wiener know about this movie that you were working on? Did you meet him at all? I never got a chance to meet him. It's a, it's a sad story. I, uh, I emailed him 
when I decided to, that I was going to make the film, so he's the first person I contacted, and I did get a response from him and saying that he was interested, and uh, he, had a, he had a habit of doing all his emails in all caps, which I found out later, and of course, so this email came all caps, and he said, yeah, let's talk about it, and I'm interested, and uh, I emailed him back and never got any response. And, you know, a couple of weeks went by, no response. I was kind of bummed out, and I thought, well, maybe that's the end of the film because, you know, he's the main guy. And then one day I go to my computer, and I see that he has passed away. And I, I just thought, wow, well, that's why he didn't get back to me. And, but then I thought, no, I'm just going to keep going, and I started to talk to some of the other people that were very a, a big part of the bongo band, including Perry Botkin, Jr., and that's when I started to get the real story. And I think I realized that the, the, the reality is, is that I don't think I could have made the film if Wiener had been alive because, you know, some of what he said about the bongo band in interviews and that, especially later on, turned out not to be true. And I think that, that he probably would have gotten in my way, and I don't think that I could have made the film. Is backgammon responsible for Gene Simmons narrating your movie, Sample This, Dan Forer? <laughs> no, no, it's not. Gene Simmons is, is sort of, uh, most people think, well, what's Gene Simmons got to do with the bongo band, other than, you know, the kiss started about the same time, although they, you know, they were in New York City. But uh, Gene Simmons and Michael Wiener were good buddies, and uh, they hung out together all the time. And uh, especially in the, probably from the, the mid to late 80s. And uh, so he has a very direct connection to the story. Did, you, did Gene Simmons want to get Peter Chris involved or anything like that? Did he have any suggestions? No, the only, the only thing uh, Gene Simmons told me is that they definitely played all the instruments on their records. Uh, there was no studio musicians. And uh, Gene is quite a music aficionado. He's an expert on you know, records and, and music and is a bit of a music geek. Because there was that rumor that when Kiss were doing live gigs, that there actually was a drummer underneath the stage playing drums because Peter Chris couldn't handle it on top of the stage. Well, he, uh, definitely, Gene did not cop to that when uh, we, we spent we spent about a day together doing the uh, the narration, and then he also appears in the film. Um, one of the uh, it didn't wind up in the film, but uh, one of the the great studio musician bass players by the name of Carol Kay happened to be at Sunset Sound where we were doing the uh, the recording. And uh, Jean and her, they, she started teaching him how to play the bass, and they were going back and forth, and, and it was quite something to watch. you got to save that for the extras. Do we have that for the extras? Yes. And speaking of the movie sample this, oh, that's awesome. You got it from the extras. Where can people check it out? You're mentioning not yet theatrical, but possibly a little screening coming up in the new year. Well, the, the only we, we're in negotiations. It's, it's going to be have a theatrical release. Uh, it early in the new year, but I really can't give any details. Uh, through uh, the producer that I worked on the uh, the film with, a fellow by the name of Bob Burris, uh, he organized uh, that we're going to have a screening uh, at UC Davis at the end of January in, in you know Davis, California, at the at the school, and uh, so that's really the only place that they can anybody can really see the film um, in the near future, and uh, but. You know, hopefully we'll have something to announce even before then. But they can see the trailer right now 
on yeah, YouTube. The, tra- the trailer is on YouTube. Uh, if you're really interested in following the film, we update it all the time. We're on Twitter, sample this movie, and also on Facebook, sample this movie, and www.samplethismovie.com. Uh, and the trailer is, is on YouTube. And, and uh, yeah, it's two and a half minutes long, and you can get some idea of what the film is like. And we're here live on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show with Dan Ford, the director of Sample This, all about the Incredible Bongo Band. Who are some of the members from the Incredible Bongo Band? Like, to find out the myth behind the Incredible Bongo Band, your movie does an amazing job profiling all these people right off the bat. And this is a question that Leora Kornfeld had, actually, regarding good old Ringo Starr. She was wondering about Ringo Starr, right, Leora? Well, yeah, there was a reference to Ringo Starr in the movie. There were many references to a a cavalcade of people in the movie. But what's the story about Ringo and do you believe it? And my second question on top of that is, did John Lennon really help mix it? Well, here's here's what I've been able to find out. Unfortunately, I have not been able to talk to Ringo. And, you know, he's the the horse's mouth and I I got close to him, but he's not not very accessible. Uh, Sorry to to interrupt, Dan. I was just going to say, is there a way to actually find out if people are listening? Like, for instance, oh, who actually played on us? Is there a session log that people can find out who played on it, who produced it? Is there a master tape? You know, like we have a classic albums where you can bring up the bass, you can bring down the drums, all that sort of stuff. Is that that available or is all that gone? It's all gone. I really wish. I mean, I obviously tried to hunt for all the records that I could find, you know, anything physical uh, to, to help tell the story. And unfortunately, it's all gone. One of the stories that was told to me by several of the musicians was that he had brought, Wiener had brought up a 16 track master tape of Bongo Rock and the stuff that they recorded in LA. He brought up a 16-track tape, and he was going to play it for the musicians in Vancouver because there were different musicians that, that, than that played on the L.A. session. And apparently the tape got brought up. It went through an X-ray machine at the airport. They racked the tape up and went to play it back at Mushroom, and there was nothing on it, and it had been erased. And so that was, and that was told to me by several people, including an engineer who was, uh, you know, at the session. And Wiener was mortified. And the, the so there really isn't any any material. The only stuff that exists were some union records, union contracts for the original Bongo Rock session, and also uh, some overdubs that were done in L.A. But that's all that exists. And John Lennon mixing it. What about John Lennon mixing it? Well, the, 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 the Ringo and the John Lennon, I, I think there, everything that Wiener always said, there was always a grain of truth to everything that he said, but he spun it, of course, to make it more exciting and more dramatic because he had a flair for that. I think, you know, Ringo Starr was at his wedding. He was the best man at his wedding. And so he was that close to Ringo Starr. I was told by several people that John Lennon was also a friend of his, and he, the one thing about Wiener was that he was very influential and ingratiated himself with a lot of people. I do not think that Ringo played on any of the stuff, but I think that when he was mixing it, because Ringo was literally down the street working on his album at the time when Wiener would have been mixing the Bongo Band album, and I think he, because of the drummer, you see, the connection is Jim Gordon is such a beloved drummer among other drummers 
that I think he would have said to Ringo, listen, you've got to hear this stuff, Jimmy Gordon's on it, and I, I, I think that that's probably what happened. And actually, who cares about the Beatles being involved? Well, actually, I care an awful lot. But aside from that, there's at least two people involved that were on Pet Sounds, right? How many bongoers have played on Pet Sounds? Well, uh, actually, three. Um, they, they, there was a... Uh, I'm, I'm not, actually, I'm not sure. I know for sure Mike Melvoin, keyboard player, and Jim Gordon, the, the drummer, and I think Mike Dacey, the guitar player, probably, I think he also played on Pet Sounds because Pet Sounds had pretty much every uh, first call kind of studio musician would have contributed to that album if you, you know, go look at the, the records for, for that that album. It's pretty incredible. Two pet sounders on there, but yeah. Jerry Chef, too, the bass player. Now, what's the Vancouver connection for Jerry Chef, the bass player? Well, Jerry Chef, uh, you know, and there's different versions of this, but Jerry Chef kind of was burnt out after he did the, the Doors session in L.A. Uh, some people said that he had a nervous breakdown, but he just got out of L.A., and I think his marriage fell apart, and he wound up buying a place on Salt Spring Island. And so he played on a lot of the, the sort of early 70s sessions of all kinds of stuff that was happening at Mushroom, because he was around. He was available. I mean, he played with Elvis. He played with The Doors. And he was just burnt out and happened to be in Vancouver at the time that they, that they, they did the bongo band sessions. The other guy that was, was another exile from Los Angeles, a studio musician by the name of Steve Douglas, was hanging around Vancouver, and he actually organized the sessions. And, he's, and he played horns on the, on the session, and uh, so, of course, he knew Jerry, and he brought in Mike Dacey and, uh, and basically assembled the band, the sort of local band. And you had Robbie King as well, who was from Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's. Is Correct. He, is he the keyboards on the record? Yes. He, uh, uh, Robbie King played those sizzling sort of the, the you know, in, in Apache. That is Robbie King. And uh, he was the keyboard player on the, on the Incredible Bongo Band album. And again, please tell the people, Dan, for Apache, Incredible Bongo Band, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? The, his- the history of hip-hop, the national anthem of hip-hop. I mean, Will Hermes, who's a senior critic for Rolling Stone, that was the title of his, his article in the New York Times. He called it the national anthem of hip-hop. And, you know, people in hip-hop can't agree on very much, but I think they all agree that Apache was where it started. And you've assembled this amazing movie called Sample This, all about the incredible bongo band and all the characters involved. Mike Dacey, Friar Tuck and his psychedelic guitar. I love being turned on to that record. What can you say about Mike Dacey playing with Eddie Cochran, Charles Manson, but right off the bat, early Mike Dacey, Eddie Cochran, the psychedelic guitar. Yeah, and I think he, he told me, too, that he played in the coasters. In the, I mean, he just was one of those guys that was around in the early days with, with Steve Douglas and, uh, and just played in 60s rock and roll bands where they, you know, and basically what they did back then was they would have a band that was out on the road making money touring, and then they had another band, quote-unquote, that was making the records back in, 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 in L.A., and that's kind of, you know, it was the most efficient way of doing things. And then the, the, the vocalists would come back into town and lay the vocals on, and then they'd go back out on the road. 
And so Mike Dacey did a little bit of both. I, I know he was on the road, but uh, he was also really well known for studio work. Yeah, he had that amazing record, Friar Tuck and his yeah. psychedelic guitar. Plus, he was involved with the Manson family. What can you tell the people about the Manson family connection to Mike Dacey? And does he still have Manson recordings? Like, he recorded Charles Manson, like, spent three days with him. And the Manson audio that you used in the movie, did you pay for that or did Mike give you that for free? Are there any Manson recordings left? Who owns the Manson recordings? Well, the Manson recordings are, are floating around, and I, I it, it, off the top of my head, I mean, we, we cleared everything that's in the film, and I'm pretty sure we cleared that as well. There are all kinds of uh, recordings of, of Manson's floating around online, and, and, uh, and there were, I, I think he had an album or two that was put out. Um, and yeah, Mike Dacey wound up going out to Spawn Ranch with a portable recording setup to record Manson and, and his followers. And uh, he had kind of a harrowing encounter with Mr. Manson, and, and uh, it freaked him out so much that he basically left L.A. after that. What about the recordings, though? Like, he recorded a whole bunch of stuff with Manson. Like, Terry Melcher sent him up there. Was that yes. a setup? Did Melcher want to kill Mike Dacey? Go hang out with Manson! Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the uh, Mike told me that all the recordings that he had, he wound up giving them to the police because after the killings happened, uh, you know, they they went to him and apparently uh, something happened when he was out at Spawn Ranch. I think uh, the police showed up there, and then later on, of course, the, the the killings happened, and so they went and talked to to Mike, and he gave them everything that that he had, um, and uh, you know. Manson was uh, not a ha- not a bad singer for for the time period. I mean, he and, and you know, and the, the story is that nobody wanted to have anything to do with him and didn't want to produce a record for him. And his revenge was to send these people up to Cielo Drive to kill everybody in the house because that's where Terry Mel- Melcher had lived, but he had moved out, and so they went up there and killed a bunch of people that he probably didn't want to have killed. Was Mike afraid that they were going after him? Sure. I mean, they, everybody thought at the time that Manson was upset with Terry Melcher, and Terry Melcher had lived at Cielo Drive. And he had moved out, and then Sharon Tate and, and Roman Polanski had moved in. And so, and it was, I, I think it was a few months time difference, but that was the thought that Manson was upset because Melcher had told him, forget it, I don't want anything to do with you because, you know, you're crazy, and he went and exacted his revenge by sending his followers up there to uh, kill everybody in the house. So we can kind of thank Charles Manson, in a way, for the incredible bongo band recording of Apache. Well, I think... (laughs) We, I don't know if thank is the, is the right word. We, we can certainly say that because of Charles Manson, Mike Dacey played guitar on Apache and, and in the Incredible Bongo Band because it's likely that if he didn't have that encounter with Manson, there was no way that he would have moved up to Washington State and therefore be close and available for the bongo band session. And record on one of the greatest breakbeat. It's also like a breakbeat, isn't it? The Incredible yeah. Bongo Band. Sure, that's the, the the percussion part of, and I think that's the part of the of the record that really 
that's what everybody samples. That's what everybody messes around with is the break, which is the drumming and the percussion. And right now, I want to play you a clip of me speaking to Africa Bombata, who is also in your film, your film we're speaking to, Dan Forer, director of Sample This, all about Michael Wiener's incredible bongo band and the song Apache. Here's my interview with Africa Bombata. It's going to play you a little clip here of me speaking to Africa Bombata about the incredible bongo band and also a bit about breakbeats. Who are you? I'm Africa Bambata, the godfather of hip-hop last millennium, the Amara of universal hip-hop culture this millennium. Africa Bambata, what can you tell me about breakbeats? What are breakbeats? Breakbeats is that certain part of the records that makes the audience get crazy on the dance floor. It could be just a few seconds. It could be a minute long, but you take it and you extend it. And there's a lot of breakbeats. Now, today, breakbeats are a whole lot of different things. They, get, they call them um, drum and bass breakbeats. They had the breakbeats of the certain songs of funk records, rock records, hip-hop records, uh, soca records, anything that has that certain sound, that certain beat, that certain bass, that certain grunt, that certain movement of the record that just makes different sounds when you scratch it. These are all part of the breakbeat sound. Africa Mbada, one particular breakbeat I wanted to ask you about was this one. What can you say about the importance of the incredible Bongo Band's breakbeat? Well, this is uh, the national anthem for all hip-hop people, especially the B-Boys and the B-Girls. Um, this is a, one of the songs that Cool Herc and myself used to play back in the day in the Grandmaster Flash Bunga Rock and Ina Gita Vada and all the drum beats that was coming from this great group, the incredible Bungo band, many good sounds on this album. And this is one of the albums that used to get cheap for $1.99, and many of the stores have started selling from 25 to 30 to $50 just for this album. So a great album, a great group, and a great sound. Africa Bambada, if you turn the record over, I wanted to point something out. Check out where this record was actually recorded in... Well, I don't know if it was a really recorded in Vancouver. This looked like, because this never, I've never seen this on here before. So somebody might have just put that there. No, it's really recorded in Vancouver. Michael Viner's incredible bongo rock is recorded here in Vancouver. So does that mean Vancouver's kind of ground zero for hip hop then? I don't know, because all my old albums, I've never seen that on here. So <laughs> I couldn't say it was boring. Some people say it was recorded in the West Indies. Others say it was recorded in England. So it's hard to say. It's the first time I've ever seen that on there. So. No, it's really recorded in Vancouver. That's what this, you say, but that's not what I seen years ago. No, it really is. I'm not joking. The musicians may not have been from Vancouver, but it really was recorded. I couldn't tell you because back then we didn't have that special thanks to Camp Bay Studio Vancouver. This looked like this was just put on here. No, it wasn't. But this is an important record, though. This a record. Important record, but I don't remember seeing that on my album. My original albums was nowhere on there. Well, thanks very much, Africa Mabada. Really appreciate the time. Keep on rocking in the free world and do 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 do. Funk you. <laughs> Who are you? So, Dan, are you still there? Yes, I'm still here. How Great did, to hear Africa. How, how, how did you convince Africa Bombada that the incredible bongo band was recorded in Vancouver? Why didn't Africa Bombada believe me? Well, I, I think 
it's very likely that the uh, the album that he had was probably maybe even a reissue or something that came later. I mean, I have a copy of the original one, and uh, it definitely it says Canbase Studios, Vancouver, and it's plastered all over it. And so, you know, he may have seen one that, uh, and it, maybe there was an American pressing, a U.S. pressing that was that had a different cover, but I think they were all had that silver foil kind of cover with the two hands and the bongos on the on the on the front. That uh, you know was basically stolen from the um, the original Bongo Rock cover by uh, Preston Epps. If you if you uh, find that album from the fifties, uh, that's basically where it came from. So how did you convince him though? Like he's in your movie now. Does he believe it's recorded in Vancouver, or you didn't tell him it's like was recorded in Vancouver? Well, we. I mean, he. We. we when I met him, I. Uh, um, started to tell him some of the things about the bongo band that he didn't know, and he's very much an expert on the subject and, and uh, is a big fan of the incredible bongo band. And I told him that, you know, there were different drummers that played on the tracks and, and which tracks, and uh, I think that uh, when we finished our conversation, uh, he was pretty satisfied that, in fact, um, Apache was recorded in Vancouver, Canada. Could it have been, though, that Baum used the single and not the LP? Because it was a single that came out before, and it was called Canadian Content, and it wasn't even recorded in Vancouver. Could it be that he used the single? Well, I don't think so, because I don't think Apache was ever released as a single. I, I, I think Apache oh, I don't uh, mean... was just an yeah. album cut. The only th- There were singles, uh, but uh, Apache, as far as I know, was never released as a single. Just Bongo Rock was, and the flip side was Bongolia. How confusing is all this? Like, for instance, who were the Arawak All-Stars? And who's Vincent Miner's incredible bongo band? You got me on that one. Um, (laughs) I have no idea. Mushroom Studios in Vancouver, Canada is where it was all recorded. I think it's so great in your movie that you got the bongo band in the studio. Again, you got the incredible bongo band up here to Vancouver in the studio. Yes, I mean, I was able to get Jerry Sheff and Mike Melvoin, who has uh, sadly since passed away, was on keyboards. Mike Dacey was on guitar. And a, uh, I don't know if I want to talk about the drummer, because that's a, another interesting twist to the story that maybe I should say you know, for, for people that go see the film. But we did assemble an incredible bongo band in, at Mushroom Studios, and uh, we recorded a couple of tracks. Well, actually, you also record with Cat Hendricks, the Vancouver Canadian connection. Yes, yes, and and, and there was, um, yeah, he was a, a first call Vancouver drummer back in the seventies, and uh, he played drums. So, when you guys got the bongo band back together, why did we not hear Apache in the movie? We heard Hawaii Five O and not Apache. Can we hear the re-recording of Apache, or did you guys re-record Apache? We, we did. We we did not re-record Apache. And we, you know, it was just a decision that, hey, that, that, that song had been done, and, uh, you know, there's no way that we were going to uh, top the original. And so we just decided to do a couple of 60s instrumentals, uh, like if Michael Wiener had decided, hey, let's do a couple more tracks back in the day. And so we just picked uh, a couple of songs that were big hit instrumentals back in the, in the 60s, which is what most of the, the bongo band tracks consist of. What Canadians were on the incredible Bongo Band record or involved, and how many are still in Vancouver? Well, the, the really, they were all L.A. studio musicians. I mean, the only Canadian that 
may or may not have been involved, and, and it's, it's a bit of a muddled mystery, is Cat Hendricks and uh, a couple of the local guitar players at that time, maybe Terry Frewer, I think. Um, well, and then, and then uh, Robbie King, of course. Okay, I keep forgetting, but I mean Robbie King, uh, who is also no longer with us, but uh, yeah, he was an important part of it. So the, I would say Cat and, and Robbie King, and you see what happened was there was a, 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 a sort of a second session after the guys went back to L.A., and, but it's sort of all, it, it's a bit muddled, and it's just another mystery to go along with the incredible bongo band. What happened to the mushroom board? Because when you guys went back to the studio, I think it was called Hipposonic Studio at that time. Yes. Now mushroom is gone. Shout out to Hipposonic Studio in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Hello, Roger. What happened to the mushroom board that did the Apache sound? Well, I mean, it was a, it was a two board, and that's a, an interesting little story because the the actual board that it was that that was at Mushroom at the time had come from Western Recorders in Los Angeles, where guess what? Pet Sounds was recorded through that console, and it was this tube console and had big rotary uh, faders on it. Didn't have, you know? Didn't have the straight line ones. It had these round pots on it, and. I, I really don't know what happened to it. I think they probably took it out of service because, you know, it's so hard to uh, get tubes and to keep those things running. And uh, who knows what happened to the console, but it originally came from Western Recorders in Los Angeles and uh, in, from the room that Pet Sounds was done in. And uh, the, the guy that owned Mushroom at the time, it was called Canbase, um, installed it there. And uh, that's why, uh, you know, the record had this great sound. And you had Rolf Henneman, the engineer from Vancouver, engineering it. Uh, no, the engineer was um, Keith Steen, and he was the engineer. And Rolf was actually, he, was a, he probably was only 17 or 18, he was the tape operator. So he was the guy running the big 16-track machine, because that's kind of how they did it back in the day. But Keith Steen, who engineered uh, you know, the Heart Records and a lot of the, the, the hits that came out of Mushroom at that time, he was the uh, he was the engineer, and of course he engineered the session when we got the bongo band back together. You were mentioning Jim Gordon or Cat Hendricks, who was the drummer. Right. Nobody really knows. Did you think of interviewing Jim Gordon in jail? Because sadly, he killed his mom. He butchered his mom and is in jail right now. Did you think of visiting him in jail? Well, one of the yes, I did, and I wrote him several letters. One of the issues is California, the California correction system is the, probably the most difficult to deal with if you want to interview people uh, or if you want to do anything. They're very restrictive. Um, he, uh, he, he has to contact you. So for me to go visit Jim Gordon, I have to write him a letter, and then he has to send me a form that says, you know what, Dan, I don't mind if you come to see me, and then I have to submit this form to California Corrections, and then they vet me, and then at some point I can go see Jim. No one has seen him that I, that I know of. A lot of his musician friends, and I mean, he you know is so beloved by L.A. studio musicians and some very famous ones, uh, you know, because of who he played with. And uh, but nobody's really heard from him, and he's kind of I think institutionalized at this point and probably heavily medicated, and uh, it's a tragedy. How hard was it to find the other musicians involved for the incredible bongo band? Well, they were, they were scattered all over the globe. I mean, Jerry Sheff is in, in Scotland. Uh, Mike Dacey was down in Texas. 
Um, you know, Melvoin was uh, was still in Los Angeles. Perry Botkin Jr., the arranger and and sort of the musical brains behind the incredible Bongo Band, is is still in Los Angeles. Um, and he actually uh, came out of retirement to do the score. Uh, for the film, so all the, the the other music that's in the film that's not bongo band music uh, it was done by Perry Botkin Jr. What did Michael Weiner think of rap? Did he hear his songs in rap? Did he want to sue? He was he was clueless. He he had no idea about it. I think when he finally found out about it in the 90s, uh, you know, he gave a few interviews and he did try and, and sue some people and, and, you know, track down royalties because obviously people were just sampling it uh, and, uh, you know, without permission and, you know, you can't do that. Um, and so he did try, but I think that it, to him, I, I, I really don't think that he ever realized the impact that Apache had and that the Bongo Band had. And uh, it's just uh, it, it, the whole—it's it's a bit of a tragedy from from Michael Weiner's point of view. What was the appeal for Apache and the Bongo Band to rappers? Did they just like it for the drum breaks? Was it just the drum breaks, or did they like it for other aspects? Well, I think I think the guitar and the the, the organ—I mean, it's very recognizable. But I really think when you get right down to it and you look at what people have used, you know, sample-wise, it's mostly the drum and percussion break with Jim Gordon and King Arison, and that's really uh, the. Um you know that's the that's the meat of it as far as sampling goes, and that's another one I forgot about. I mean, King Arison, who really is the bongo band, and that he was the bongo you know percussion player, and uh, he wound up he's still on the road with Neil Diamond, and he lives in Las Vegas. And we're speaking here to Dan Ford, the director of Sample This, a movie all about the incredible bongo band. You went all the way back to New York City and talked to, like, Cool Herc, and you showed some Cool Herc memorabilia. He kept all his, like, gig posters and notes and stuff? Yeah, the, actually, the footage from, from, cool, from cool Herc is archival footage. Uh, I never did get a chance to talk to him. He's, uh, he's a bit of a recluse, and, and uh, I tried very hard to uh, you know, get him to, to appear you know, when I did my interviews there, but uh, I, just, I couldn't convince him, and, and I think I talked to his sister just via email, and um, he's, he, you know, he's, he's sort of one of those people that I think felt that you know hip hop kind of passed him by because he really is the godfather of hip hop and he's the one that's credited with starting everything with the merry go round but he was never able to kind of monetize that and you know he had a few health problems i think a year or so ago and he's you know he's kind of destitute and and uh, and i don't want to say that he's bitter but he really i think feels kind of slighted by by what's happened and and to see a bit a multi-billion dollar business that's kind of spawned from what he invented uh and i think it's probably a tough pill for him to swallow Grandmaster Kazo, you did track down. Yes. How hard was it to get Grandmaster Kaz? Is he the guy doing the hip hop tours? And how was that lamppost door still openable? Yeah, it, 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 that was, it was kind of fun. I mean, we, we, uh, I, you know, I found him and, uh, he's very, uh, articulate. And he took us around to the different sites, and you see some of the important places in hip-hop are in the film. And Grandmaster Kaz kind of gives you the lowdown on, you know, the, the lamppost that Howard powered hip-hop 
and uh, you know the blackout in the summer of '77, and and uh, he's a, a big part of the film and uh, does a does a great job of taking you back to those times. But the lamppost door—it's amazing you can still open the lamppost door. Can you still jack power? Yeah, you can still jack power. Uh, we we didn't jack any power, but uh, it uh, you know we we brought generators and, and, and but uh, like you said back in the day they didn't have that and yeah you just flipped open the the back I, I, and I can't believe they didn't do anything about it either and the the wires are just sticking out and uh, they just hooked up their equipment uh, to the lamppost and that's how they powered the turntables that powered the hip hop and in your movie sample this Dan you also recreate historic events like Theodore's first scratch you recreated that yeah I mean Theodore uh, was is also in the film and uh, tells the story of of you know how he invented the scratch and and uh, he said that he used the incredible bongo band that's what was on the turntable when he invented the scratch and his you know mother uh, came into his room and told him to turn the music down and I think she startled him, and he sort of did did the scratch, and he was recording at the time, and that's where it came from. And then he he went back and he listened to the tape, his little cassette tape, and went, "Wow, that sounded kind of cool." And that was the baby scratch, and and that's that's where it came from. And and he tells the story very a lot better than I do in in the film. And yes, we have him. Um, he does all kinds of uh, of terrific things with Apache, and and you get to see him perform. Who were the live people involved with the Theodore recreations, i.e., who was involved in the live footage? Like, there are some dancers going around there. Yeah, uh, 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 Fable, um, you know, the original sort of, um, you know, B-boys, uh, we got them together, and, and uh, they are, you know, they're, they're doing their, the, the breaks, dancing to the breaks of Apache. Also in the movie, you have Questlove. And as I mentioned earlier, and you heard my clip of me trying to convince the grandmaster of them all, well, not exactly the grandmaster of them all, but the legend, the legend, the legendary, the legendary Africa Bombada about, mm-hmm. you know, the Canadian connections. Questlove, he was quite agreeable to me trying to convince him that the record was recorded in Vancouver, and it really was recorded in Vancouver. And we're speaking about Michael Wiener's incredible bongo band. And here right now is a clip from the Nardwater Human Serviette archives of Questlove talking about the incredible bongo band. Today on the Nardwater Human Serviette, where we celebrate the movie Sample This with Dan Ford, director of Sample This, all about the incredible bongo band. Who are you? My name is, who am I today? Okay, today I am, okay, I'm always me. Uh, Questlove, Amir Questlove Thompson, uh, drummer of the legendary Roots Crew. Now, first off, what do you know about this record right here? This is the foundation of hip-hop, isn't it? And the incredible bongo band. Yes, the Apache Break is indeed one of the most coveted love songs in the hip-hop era, and this album also holds the distinction for being one of the first non-live band sources to be on a hip-hop record. Grandmaster Flash spun this record on the adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel back in 1981. Total foundation of hip-hop. Now let me put this forth. If you look closely on the very back of the record, it says thanks to Canbay Studios Vancouver. It was recorded in Vancouver. Have you heard about this before? That the foundation of hip-hop is Canadian. Wow. You got me with Manny Fresh and you got me with the incredible Bongo Band. 
So this was recorded here in Vancouver. It was recorded in Vancouver with some session musicians from L.A., but also some local cats. Like, I met one of the drummers that played on that, and he said he's all over, like, a Nas beat that's on the radio. It was recorded in Vancouver. Yes. I mean, pretty much everyone has used... I've even... I'm a live drummer, and I myself had to bow down and use an Apache break because there's something about that break. When it comes on, it just, that's like spiking the punch. It's absolutely spiking the punch. I asked Africa Bombada about that, but he didn't believe that it was recorded in Vancouver. He thought I put it on there, but it he really should, was. He should know better. I mean, at the rate where his favorite group, Kraftwerk, was from Germany, you know, then you guys, you guys are allowed to claim something. I know that, you know, you, you guys get a little semi-bad rep about certain things i see i said about about uh but pretty much you know we got respect for canada you know where do we go when we don't want to fight a war we'll come to canada and we invented hip-hop yes and you invented hip-hop and the conscientious objector well thanks so much Questlove. keep on rocking in the free world and do 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 check check and you're still listening to the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. And that was Questlove, Dan. Questlove! Oh, yeah, it was uh, terrific to uh, have him in the film. I mean, we interviewed him in his, uh, at the Jimmy Fallon show in his little practice room, and he was sitting behind his drums, and, and uh, he started messing around with the Apache break. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite something to have him in the film and we have another caller on the line right now caller you're here live to dan Ford, director of sample this hello caller go ahead hey hey how you doing good um yeah my name's uh ed hannah and i i happen to know that uh cat hendrix was definitely definitely the drummer for uh for the uh the apache break because mm-hmm. uh he's my uh he's, he's my brother's dad and we've talked about it uh Talked about it and how he's had recorded it down to mushroom. Yeah, I mean, I, there's no doubt in my mind that he played oh, okay, Apache okay. in Vancouver with the with the arrangement. I think the the but there were overdubs done with King because because King Arison, the percussionist, did tell me that he did not do Apache in Vancouver and that he overdubbed it in L.A. But I also found some contracts for Jim Gordon and the Incredible Bongo Band doing overdubs. The other thing is, is that there is a nasty edit in Apache. If you listen closely, and it's as, it's as obvious as, as can be if you actually listen for it. So something happened with Apache, and really, um, I, I think it's, I, I, you can't say with any certainty who's actually playing on there. Some people think it is Jim Gordon. Um, I know that Cat did play on Apache in Vancouver, whether or not that drumming wound up on the record that was released. We don't know for sure because basically the master tapes are gone, the records are gone. So I, I think it's, I think oh. it's a, a, a um, you know, it's a mystery, and I don't think we'll mystery. ever know for sure. Oh shit! Well, good to know. Uh, yeah, I've been going around, uh, going around telling everybody it's my brother's dad on that, on the, on the Apache break. So I guess I know now. <laughs> there you go. Now, and that's, and that's, that's. It's, it's just very, very difficult. There is, there is an edit. And so I really, and I, and I think if I had to bet money on it, I would say that they're probably both on the record. I think that it, it's likely that the break was Jim Gordon, if I, if I really, somebody pressed me on it. But yeah. I think there, there was an edit in it, and I know, and Cat for sure played it in Vancouver. I just don't know whether that, his drumming wound up on the album that wound up being released. Uh, okay. Well, you know, you could probably get in touch with Cat. Uh, cats in the film. 
Oh, he's in film. Oh, right on. Yeah, check out Played drums on the new tracks that we recorded uh, at Mushroom, or it was now known as Hipposonic. And, uh, yeah, so no, Cat's in the film. And oh, Caller. Yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't talked to him for quite a while, so. And well, Caller, you, you can yeah. check out the trailer at samplethismovie.com. Samplethismovie.com. But yes. thanks very much, Caller, and doot doot a loot do. Do, do. And you're still listening to the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. And coming up after the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show, at 7 o'clock, we have Jerome Broadway continuing on with CITR's 75th anniversary celebration programming. And we still have in the studio right now, Leora Kornfeld. Hello, Leora. Hi. I think the Jerome Broadway show is like a salute to musicals or something or some sort of Tin Pan Alley thing. That's my understanding. Jerome Broadway coming up at 7 o'clock. And as... At 6 o'clock, sorry. 7 Mountain Time. <laughs> 7 Mountain Time. And, as I mentioned, you're still on the Nardwater Human Serviette radio show, I hope, listening to Dan Forer and me, Nardwater Human Serviette, and also special guest Leora Kornfeld. And, Leora, you have a question for Dan about the money. Well, yeah, you had talked about how when Wiener clued into what was happening with all the samples uh, with Apache that he then tried to, to sue some people and track down the money that way, he was unsuccessful. Did you find out where the money actually went? Uh, well, I, I think Wiener's estate, I think, w- was a complete mess when he when he passed away. I don't think he was successful in, in uh, collecting very much. I think in the, towards the very end, uh, you know, let's say in the last five years, I know that uh, there was a fellow in England who was sort of looking after the, 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 the masters and licensing of the Bongo Band material. And, you know, they have a CD out in, in print. It's called Mr. Bongo Records. And so I think he was successful in getting some artists to pay. And I guess, you know, the, the money did wind up with Wiener because when he left MGM, he took Pride Records uh, with him and everything that was on Pride Records. And so Wiener and now Wiener's estate are the owners of uh, the material. Mm. And speaking of the money, and we're speaking here to Dan Ford, director of Sample This, SampleThisMovie.com. How much does Amy Winehouse cost? You had a lot of clearances there, like Ozzy and Herod, the Partridge family. How much does Kennedy cost? You have, like, Kennedy assassination footage. Is it hard to go and get these masters? You have to deal with Dick Clark. Is it hard to deal with Dick Clark? Uh, yes, 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 yes. I, I mean, some of the some of the footage is uh, considered public domain. Um, you know, I never really have relied on fair use for any of the material that's in the film. Um, the, uh, the 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 Ozzy and Harriet uh, is public domain, although um, you know I paid for it to get, uh, to get a nice clean clip. Um, but yeah, there's a ton of licensing. There's a ton of publishing. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, the, the film has a lot of pop culture in it, and it's certainly, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's a, a film about hip-hop. It's more this story where hip-hop comes out at the end of it. And, uh, but, yeah, there is a lot of licensing, uh, and it's uh, one of, the, one of the, the difficult things of doing a documentary like Sample This are, is the licensing. What's it like to deal with Dick Clark? Because you have Dick Clark in your movie, and it's not easy to deal with Dick Clark. Rest in peace. Well, I mean, the, 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 Dick Clark, you know, has a has a division where they license clips. Uh, they're actually very helpful, and and uh, early on, 
um, you know, because I found out that the, the, a, a version of the Incredible Bongo Band appeared on uh, one of his shows in, in 1973, and very quickly they dug something out of their vaults for me, and I was able to license it, and I mean, they, they uh, were no more difficult or easier to deal with than, than any of the other big studios. I mean, there's a lot of studio footage in the, in the film, and uh, there's some good clips. There was a, a, a great guy who uh, did me a, 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 a good favor, the guy who made Wild Style. Uh, there's, you know, some clips from Wild Style in, in uh, Sample This. Uh, so it's, there was a lot of time and energy that went into clearing all the material. And the film looks fantastic. What sort of camera was used? Well, I mean, the film was shot as a, on the red camera. I mean, it was shot to be shown in a theater. The director of photography is a guy from Hollywood who's very experienced. And so it's certainly, uh, w- you know, I thought the film deserved, the, the story deserved the full treatment. And so it's definitely not a low-budget documentary. Um, it was shot with a red camera. And uh, thank you for saying that it looks terrific. RPM movie that's mentioned in your movie, Sample This RPM movie, that looks great too. RPM the movie. Well, RPM is really the genesis of the bongo band uh the 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 person that was musically responsible for the bongo band Wiener was the producer and he had the concept and he then hired perry botkin who was an arranger and who'd been nominated for an academy award and had won a grammy and so he actually did the the actual work of putting the record together and he loved uh, drum and percussion sounds, and it went back to his childhood. But he did a version of the Bongo Band for a soundtrack for this film called RPM. And it's all percussion, and actually Jim Gordon played on it, along with another drummer, a famous studio drummer. And they had this track called The Riot. And uh, it's all drums and percussion, and that really is the, where the sound of the bongo band came from. And that was done, I think, in 1970 or 71. And so a year later, when Botkin was asked to do another sort of drum-based record, I think he drew inspiration from what he had done in RPM, from, from, from the movie soundtrack. And that was the song that was falsely labeled CanCon, wasn't it? Bongo Rock. Yeah, well, bong- yeah, Bongo Rock... Was the was done uh, for a soundtrack inspired by the thing with two heads. So Bongo Rock came later. RPM was the sound of the incredible Bongo Band, and then and then the film, the thing with two heads. They decided to put out a soundtrack album. They were short some tracks, and so that's where Bongo Rock came from. And I think Wiener liked. Uh, the song Bongo Rock by Preston Apps. They probably tried to license it or they didn't want to pay to license it. And so he told Perry, why don't you do a version of it? And they did that in Los Angeles with studio musicians, uh, Bobby Hall, who's a Motown player, a guy named Ed Green, who was the drummer for Barry White, and then the Crusaders, the <laughs> Joe Sample and, and uh, David T. Walker, uh, and the other guy's name escapes me at the moment, but those were the original players on Bongo Rock. And I thought we would end the Nardwarta Human Serviette radio show not with Apache, the song that everybody knows, but with Bongo Rock, the fake Canadian content. It was labeled Canadian content. For people that don't know that, 
Canadian content is like MAPL and it has to be two of the four things MAPL music artist production and lyrics and it was falsely labeled as Canadian it was, yeah it was zero I mean it was done in LA lastly lastly here though before we cut to that Dan Four, director of the movie sample this Rosie Greer is also in you I mean all these great things Rosie Greer did he tell you anything more about the Kennedy assassination because he had like his gun in the pocket like the gun that Sirhan Sirhan used to kill Bobby Kennedy did he tell you anything more about the Kennedy assassination? He didn't. He he told the story of that night, and I remember when I shot the interview with him, there was 15 or 20 people in the studio, and people were crying. I mean, he, he took us back to that night in 1968 and told the story. Uh, of course, he was roommates with Michael Wiener. That's the connection. And Wiener had worked for Bobby Kennedy, and so did Rosie Greer. And the two of them wound up being roommates. And I did ask Rosie whether he ever discussed the assassination with Wiener, and he claimed that he didn't. Um, so you, you, you can make what you want of that. He, he didn't um, give me any other, other information about the Kennedy assassination. Um, you know, Wiener also had a connection to a notorious mobster that's also part of the film. It's a brief part of it. Um, that was connected to the Kennedys and who was a family friend going back to his grandfather. Um, so Wiener is a very interesting character, and it, but he became involved with Rosie Greer, who was one of the stars of The Thing with Two Heads. So all these connections are kind of interesting. And they come together for Sample This movie.com sample this movie.com and we've been speaking here thank you so much really appreciate you calling into the Nardwater Human Survey Radio Show to Dan Four, the director of Sample This Leora any ask questions at all for Dan well I, I wanted to know why we didn't see Jamie aka DJ Functual who we see uh, dancing around in his room which appears to be in his parents house on YouTube when he tells the story of the incredible bongo band and I was hoping that we'd see him in the film but we didn't, or did he end up on the cutting room floor? I think he wound up on the cutting room floor. At one point, we had a chunk of his YouTube video in the opening sequence of the film, and he had given me permission to use it, and it just wound up on the cutting room floor. It wound up being replaced with Nas and Amy Winehouse and, and uh, one of the, some other, Melly Mel and, and Kaz dancing around. And, and so he was on the cutting room floor. One of the issues was that the, the, uh, the, the quality of the YouTube video was so low because he literally made it with a webcam or something. And I had talked to him about maybe recreating something or doing something, and it just never happened. And plus, it you know, would really would be hard to um, recreate the spontaneity and the enthusiasm that he has for the incredible bongo band. And uh, he's, people should, you know, should definitely check his video out on YouTube because it's a, it's a terrific uh, bit of work. And he, uh, but he, like everyone else, mispronounces uh, Wiener's last name and calls him Viner, but uh, it's, it's well worth watching. What is his title to gain? What's the title of his? The title. I think if you if you just uh, go on YouTube and just go uh, Michael Wiener's uh, Incredible Bongo Band, it it'll come up really high in the search. And his his name is DJ Functual, and uh, it's a it's a terrific clip. Oh, I remember how I found it. I just typed in Michael Wiener's Incredible Bongo Band story, and that came up. Yeah, and, and it, it's not hard to find, and uh, it's it's uh, it's terrific. I mean, he 
He basically tells the story uh, based on probably reading the New York Times article and uh, plays the music, and he's very enthusiastic. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, in, in one way, I wish he would have wound up in the film, but it's just one of those things when you, you're making a film that some stuff just winds up on the cutting room floor. Anything else you'd like to say at all, Leora Kornfeld? Well, well, I hope maybe you'll, you'll fly him out to uh, one of the premieres, maybe in L.A. or New York, and take him out to a, a nice fancy dinner. Something like that would be appropriate. I, I totally agree with you, and I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to uh, a screening in, in New York because there were so many people there that helped us and uh, you know, in telling the story. And I really, in a lot of ways, it is a New York story as much as it is a, a Vancouver story, and uh, I look forward to seeing it with uh, people in New York. Well, thanks so much for phoning in to the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show. Dan Ford, director of Sample This, all about Michael Wiener's incredible bongo band. Anything else you want to add to the people out there at all? I mean, just keep your eyes uh, out for the film. I mean, I, I hope that a lot of people get to see it. it is, it's, I think it's an important part of music history, and uh, I spent three and a half years uh, working on it and researching it and tracking everybody down, and uh, I think it's well worth the 85 minutes of your time to uh, sit back and uh, watch the story unfold. Well, thanks so much, Dan. Keep on rocking in the free world, and do-do-do-do-do. Bongo, bongo.
CITR is celebrating its 75th anniversary of UBC Radio Excellence, 30 years on the FM dial, and 30 years of Discorder Magazine. Your one and only CITR 101.9 FM is inviting all CITR alumni and friends to our alumni weekend this November 16th and 17th. On the 16th, we'll be kicking it live on location at Perch on 337 Hastings around 5 p.m. for some beers, cheers, and cooling with peers. The 17th, come to Thea's Lounge for some Give Us Your Love brunch at 11 a.m. Find out more about what's going down at the station and the progress we have made over the years. Shortly after, join us for tours of our beloved station and learn about our space in the new sub. Come to our birthday party on Saturday evening at Chapel Arts with CITR alumni Lisa Marr and Culture Shock performing, as well as Gang Signs, Fine Mist, Carolyn Mark, and Channels 3 and 4. Reminisce about the good old days bumping the shows of the past as we have dedicated this special weekend to hearing our alumni on the airwaves. So come and cool out with us on the freaking weekend and have you some fun. But don't forget to register for events. Visit citr.ca for more details.